The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So let's now open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the Scriptures and let them speak. Why don't you open up your Bibles to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3. You're not going to get away that easy. 1 Peter chapter 3. And uh, this book has really been uh, such an encouragement uh, to work through. The wisdom from this book has been powerful, practical, incredibly timely for us in the days that we're living in. And uh, this is so much more than just ancient history. Uh, Whether you realize it or not, the book of 1 Peter has much more to do with you than you might originally think. Uh, The churches of Asia Minor uh, look a lot more like the the churches of modern-day America uh, than we might realize. And there may be no more relevant book to be studying than the book of 1 Peter. Just to remind you of where we were the last time we were together in 1 Peter, uh, we were studying uh, the response of the the church uh, when our faith is under fire. Uh, How should the church respond when the world turns against the church? What does it look like to live as a believer when you're suffering for living as a believer? And how do you keep the faith when you're suffering for it? 1 Peter 3, uh, verses 13 to 17, gave us some powerful and practical ways to think through those questions. I just want to remind you of of what they were. How do we respond when our faith is under fire? Now, this is just a reminder. Number one, do good, verse 13. We're to respond by being zealous for good works. Uh, Verse 14, to think rightly. We're to consider ourselves blessed if we do suffer. In verse 14, again, we're not to fear. We're not to fear or to be troubled uh, by those who seek to intimidate us. Uh, Verse 15, we're to honor Christ. We're to regard Christ as Lord in our hearts, to fear him above all those who would seek to oppose us. We're to be ready. In verse 15, again, uh, we're to be ready to give an account of our hope. And in verse 16, we're to stay clean. Uh, We're to maintain a clean conscience so that we have nothing to be ashamed about. Uh, That's the the battle plan uh, that we're to maintain uh, during a time when our faith is under fire. To do good, to think right, not to fear, to honor Christ, to be ready, and to stay clean in our conscience. But starting in verse 18, uh, what Peter does is he reminds us that we have much more than just a battle plan Uh, We have a a war general who leads us from the front lines. We have our captain. Jesus is our captain. And he's our example in suffering. And that's the connection uh, that's being made between verses 17 and 18. Uh, Verse 17, it reminds us that it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. And how do we know that we should do that? And who has been the example for us? Verse 18, for Christ also died or Christ also suffered would be the better translation there. For sins, once for all, the just for the unjust. Jesus Christ is our perfect example of suffering for doing what is right. And as uh, Peter mentions in Acts chapter 10 and verse 38, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. And we are witnesses of these things. He did both in the land of the, the Jews and in Jerusalem. So he did good wherever he was. He was zealous for good deeds. It was his food to do the will of the Father. But how did they repay Jesus for all the good works that he performed and went about doing? 
The end of the verse says, they also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. No one suffered for doing what is right the way that Jesus did. And, And why do I say that? Because Jesus always did what was right. There's never anything that they could find in Jesus as a, as a reason, as a cause for his suffering. But he still paid the ultimate price. And there's some of you who may be doing the right thing and are suffering for it. But we can all admit that Christ did far better and suffered far worse, right? Christ did far better than any of us could. And in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 4 it says, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. You're still here, right? You haven't yet gone to the point of giving your life for doing what's right. And Jesus suffered paying the ultimate price for doing what was right. And not only suffering the the physical price, but also bearing the the weight of the wrath of God for our sins. And we're to look to him. He's to be our example. But that's not where Peter stops. The the passage doesn't stop. It just, you know, look to the suffering Savior. You know, we we don't just, you know, keep Jesus up on the crucifix as if he's just continually suffering. We don't end with Jesus' example in suffering. The passage ends with Jesus in triumph. And uh, that's why I said that the, the choir already sang the, the sermon for us. That Jesus triumphs. He reigns. And that's where this passage is taking us to. Look at verse 22 of chapter 3. It speaks about Jesus who was at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Jesus, the one who was crucified, is now alive. And where is he? He's at the right hand of God. And all powers are subjected to him. And that's where this passage is is heading. And that's the encouragement that Peter wants us to leave with. He wants to leave these broken believers that he's writing to, to say that, that this is not where it ends. It doesn't end with suffering. Suffering and persecution is not the end of the road. The end of the road for you is glory. Glory is the end of the road. And how is Jesus rewarded for his sufferings? He was elevated to the right hand of God. That, that right hand of, of God is uh, considered the place of power. You know, no disrespect to the left-handed people in here, but the right-handed people have run the world for a long time, right? How, how many right-handed people do we have out there? Right-handed people, right? You, you can look around. The right, right-handed people have been in charge for a long time. Actually, uh, statistics say that 90% or more people are right-handed. And when the scripture speaks about a place of power, it speaks about the right hand, the right hand of power. In Psalm 89 and verse 13, it says, you have a strong arm, your hand is mighty, your right hand is exalted. The right hand was a place of power. It was also the place of honor and blessing. If you remember when uh, Joseph uh, brought his sons to Jacob so that he could pronounce a blessing upon them, if you remember that back in Genesis chapter 48. And uh, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head. So he crossed his arms. As, you know, Joseph is presenting them to Jacob in order, and Jacob crosses his arms so he could put the right hand on the younger child. Then in verse 17, it says, When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him. He grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's said. To Manasseh said, Joseph said to his father, no, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also will become a people. He will also be great 
However, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. The, the right hand was the place of power. The right hand was the place of honor and blessing. And this is the place that Christ is seated at before God. But I also want to show you one more thing. Flip over to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Just, just briefly, this is a psalm that we've turned to often, but I want to show you the, uh, the connection here between Christ and the, and the right hand, the place of the, the right hand. Psalm 110. This is a, a messianic psalm. We've turned to it many times before, but you have here David speaking prophetically about the one who would come from his line but still be the ruler over him. He's speaking about the Messiah. Look at verse 1 of Psalm 110. Psalm of David says, The Lord says to my Lord, capital L-O-R-D, speaking about Yahweh, covenant name for God, says to my Lord, my Adonai, my master, sit at my right hand. The Lord Yahweh says to my Lord Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying what? Rule in the midst of your enemies. That's a reference to Jesus Christ, who does what? He rules. He reigns. The right hand was also the place of authority and rule. And to be at the right hand of God in this context is to share the authority and the power of God himself. So when we speak about Jesus being at the right hand of God, we're speaking about his equality with God, his elevation to the highest level of authority and power and honor and blessing. And one of the ways that's demonstrated was also by the subjugation of his enemies. His enemies are made a footstool for his feet, and he rules in the midst of them. And that's exactly what 1 Peter chapter 3 speaks about. Why don't you flip back over to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, again, in verse 22, it speaks about angels, authorities, and powers subjected to him. That word uh, subjected is our, our word hupotasso. It means that to fall in rank, to fall in line. It's a, it's a passive form here, which means that the, the object was caused to be in compliance, brought under submission. So how is Christ rewarded for his sufferings? He's elevated to the right hand of God. His enemies are subjected to him. And like I said, this is where this passage takes us. And I don't want you to forget that because this is also one of the most difficult passages in all of the Bible to interpret. But if you keep your eye on the ball, okay, that's why we spent some time up front. Keep your eye on the prize. Don't miss where we're going, okay? Jesus Christ is Lord. He's ruler. He's overall. Angels are even made subject to this one. And I don't want you to miss that as we start to work our way uh, through this passage. So uh, why don't we go ahead and uh, start to read from uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll go ahead and start at verse 18, and I'll read down to verse 20. Why don't you follow with me? It says, For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during which... During the construction of the the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Why don't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and Father, we do thank you for uh, this text. 
Now, Father, we thank you for what it communicates to us about our, our Savior, what it communicates to us about our, our King, uh, the, the one who reigns forever. And, uh, Father, I pray that you would uh, uh, just enlarge our understanding of who our Savior is. And, uh, Father, that we would have a, a greater appreciation for who Jesus is. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. Amen. As I've mentioned, this is one of the, the most debated and written about passages from the earliest days of the church. Uh, the, the church fathers wrestled with it. Uh, they held various views about this passage. Clement, Origen, uh, Cyril of Alexandria believed that this passage taught that unbelievers could have a second chance after death. You know, with this proclamation to the, the spirits in, in prison, they believed uh, that this is a, a reference to speaking to uh, departed unbelievers who have a second chance uh, after death. Others taught that this was uh, some kind of limbo state that uh, even believers were, were held in and they could be brought out of. Reformers wrestled with this passage, uh, held various views on it. Martin Luther, uh, for example, who uh, didn't have much of a problem speaking his mind and speaking with certainty, he said this. He says, this is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage in the New Testament. I still don't know for sure what the apostle meant. Modern interpreters wrestle with this passage. One commentator calculated 180 different views. And don't worry, I'm not going to go over all 180 with you today. But what I want you to keep in mind, like I mentioned before, is what is the point of this passage? The point of the passage is crystal clear, okay? Jesus is rewarded for his suffering by being elevated to the right hand of God and his enemies being subjected to him. And in the same way, we who follow his example in suffering will also follow in his triumph. Yep. And if you can keep your eyes on the eternal weight of glory to come, rather than the momentary light afflictions that we have in this life, you can learn to persevere as uh, Romans chapter 2 and verse 7 says, Those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. What we, what we understand from this passage is that the greatest battle has already been won. The final victory has already been secured, and we will all be brought safely all the way home. That's the point. Christ is victorious, okay? That's what we don't want to lose sight of. But uh, this is a passage that, you know, if I've, I've gone to a lot of different churches to, to, to preach as a, as a guest preacher. This is not the passage that I would have picked, right? <laughs> but when you're committed to one congregation and verse-by-verse verse teaching, you can't avoid even the most difficult and challenging Passages, And that's a benefit for both the preacher and for the congregation, right? And if you ever wondered, are we committed to verse-by-verse exposition, here you go. So what is Peter talking about? What is he talking about? It's clear that, that Christ made a proclamation. That's what we find in uh, verse 19. It says, in which he went and made proclamation. So, so that's, that's clear. He went and made proclamation. But the question is, to whom did he make this proclamation? And when did he make this proclamation. And what was the proclamation? And this is going to be a, a bit more technical than we're used to for Sunday service, but, but that's the nature of the text that we're in. There's broadly four main suggestions of what's going on here. Number one is the view that Christ went to hell to preach to men who were spirits in prison, and he was preaching a message of salvation. Uh, this is called the, the post-mortem conversion view. And... Uh, like I mentioned, this was taught by some early church fathers like Clement, Origen, Cyril of Alexandria. And they believed that this 
passage teaches that you can have a second chance after death. But there's no such thing as an evangelistic mission in hell. And there's nothing in scripture that would defend that kind of position. And in fact, the scriptures explicitly argue against that view. In uh, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, we know it well. It says, inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, right? Once. And after this, the judgment. There's only one shot. You, you, you die and you're judged. There's, there's not another opportunity after death to come to faith in Jesus Christ. In uh, Luke chapter 16 and verse uh, 26, if you remember the, uh, the, the parable, uh, and some people believe it was actually a, a historical event that Jesus uh, spoke in uh, Luke chapter 16. He spoke about the, the rich man and Lazarus who both perished, both died, and there was a great chasm that was fixed in between them. There, there's no crossing over from one place to the other. A great chasm was fixed. And if a man doesn't believe, it's not because you know, he just didn't have another, uh, enough information and needed a second chance. It's because he rejected the knowledge of God that he did have. And the Bible lets us know that there is no excuse for unbelief. Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, it says that, that they are without excuse. You're, you're without excuse to not believe in God. You don't have an excuse not to believe in God. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2, it lets us know that now, today, is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. This is the time that we have to come to the Lord. It's not, not another time, another time in the future after death. Today is the day, the day that you have now. Amen. I love what uh, Martin Luther used to say, that there's two days that... That, are, uh, that matter on the calendar, you know, this day and that day. You know, this day you can change, but that day you can't. <laughs> Those are two days, and you can't change that day. That day will be fixed. There's a great chasm. There's no crossing over from one to the other. A second view. second view was also held by some church fathers. It was known as the ransom view. The ransom view. And this taught that Old Testament saints were held captive by Satan until Christ paid the ransom to free them from Satan. You know, it's like the, like the ransom payment. You know, he had to, had to release the hostages. This is a, a ransom view of the atonement. It, it's actually uh, reflected in a version of the Apostles' Creed that most of us may be familiar with today. Uh, uh, and you have to kind of get beneath the words to, to find out what they actually meant by this. Uh, but in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Creator of the heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he arose again from the dead. And what do they mean by that, that he descended into hell? Uh, Fairbain and Reeves, in their book, the, the Story of the Creeds and Confessions, they say in these early views, the atonement was God's gaining victory over the powers of death and the devil so as to liberate the people who were held captive to those powers. With this approach to the death of Christ in the background, the descent into hell was understood as either the announcement of victory or as the actual liberation of Old Testament believers who were unjustly held by the devil, but who could not be freed until Christ won the victory. What does that say? Uh, that Old Testament believers were kind of like held in some kind of, you know, holding compartment, you know, in some kind of limbo, held captive by Satan for how many thousands of years until Christ came? And then after Christ came and paid the price, now we can let you go free. That's, that's what this, this view taught. But the Bible doesn't speak about Old Testament saints in some kind of state of limbo, being held hostage by Satan. 
The Old Testament saint was immediately taken by God. Genesis chapter 5, verse 24. Remember Enoch? Enoch walked with God and he was not why? For God took him. God took him. Psalm 23, verse 6. David says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Right? 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11. Remember, Elijah was taken up by a chariot of fire. And where was he taken? He was taken to heaven. He wasn't taken to some kind of holding tank, some kind of limbo somewhere until Jesus finally came. No, no the, the way that it worked is that the Old Testament believer was looking forward to the cross. Just as we in the New Testament are looking backwards to the cross. But it's the same cross that pays for all sins. Old Testament believers look forward to it. We look back to it. Uh, I like uh, what uh, one author said. He said it's like the Old Testament believers uh, got their sins paid for on credit. You know, the payment hadn't come yet, but it's like they kept on doing the sacrifices. It's like those you know, monthly payments until the final payment came. Jesus Christ is that final payment. He's the one that took care of sins. He's the only one that could pay for our sins. So the Bible doesn't speak about Old Testament saints, you know, somehow being held until Jesus Christ came. Actually, in uh, Romans chapter 3 and verse 25, it lets us know that, that God passed over the sins previously committed. The sins that were committed in the Old Testament because he knew that the full payment was going to come. You know, the Old Testament believers kept swiping the card, paying for the forgiveness, but the payment was coming. The payment of Jesus Christ was coming. We looked back and they looked forward. Another view, another view is this uh, view that Christ preached through Noah to the people of Noah's day. Again, if you look at 1 Peter chapter 3 again, it speaks about in verse 20, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. And that's a view that was uh, held as far back as uh, Augustine, who lived in the, the 4th and 5th centuries, uh, he held this, this view and, and argued that the, the spirit of Christ can preach through other individuals. And actually, if you look back to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10, it gives an indication of uh, the spirit of Christ being active in the Old Testament. Chapter 1 and verse 10, it says, As to the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And those who hold to this view believe that, that Noah, who was a preacher of righteousness, that it was actually Jesus preaching through him. But why single out Noah? I mean, all prophets spoke by the Spirit of God, right? And it doesn't seem to make sense of the context that places the proclamation of Christ after his being put to death in the flesh. So, so, so that view has some issues with it. Uh, and then I'll throw in one more before I get to the final view. Uh, one more view before I mention the last one is uh, the view of our beloved brother, R.C. Sproul, who taught that this is a reference to the earthly ministry of Christ before his crucifixion. And that the, the spirits in prison were uh, those who he spoke to uh, prior to his crucifixion. And uh, that it was just like those in the days of, of Noah when men were held captive by their sins. So, uh, being spirits in prison was like uh, those who are being captive to their sin. But even Sproul admits that you have to kind of rearrange the flow of the text in order to arrive at that conclusion. So I ask again, what is Peter talking about? What's going on here? And I, I trust we'll hope to answer that question uh, and it becomes more clear as we start to ask these questions. Number one, to whom did Christ preach? 
To whom did Christ preach? Back to 1 Peter chapter 3 again. It says, in which, verse 19, also he went and made proclamation. He made proclamation. To who? To the spirits now in prison. Which spirits in prison? The ones who were once disobedient. When were they disobedient? When the patience of God kept waiting. At what time? In the days of Noah. And specifically during the construction of the ark. That's who Christ was proclaiming to, to those spirits. And it's important to note that the Bible doesn't use the word spirits to refer to men unless it's qualified. In other words, when the Bible speaks of, of the, spirit, the spirit of man or the spirits of righteous men uh, made perfect, it makes it clear that it's referring to men, to mankind. It never just refers to men as spirits. Whenever you see the, the word spirits without a qualifier in the scripture, it's used to speak of angels or demons. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, uh, verse 14, uh, refers to holy angels and says, Are they not all ministering spirits? You know, automatically, you know that he's talking about angels, right? Sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. Luke chapter 10, verse 20, referring to demons, says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. You know, automatically they would have understood that he's speaking about, you know, an angelic being. He's speaking about a, a spirit, you know, either evil spirit, holy spirit, you know, not holy as the, you know, the, the third person of the Trinity, but a holy angel. But we don't have any examples of the word spirit being used to speak of men unless it's qualified, okay? That's, that's the, the first thing that I want to point out. And it speaks about these, these spirits these fallen angels, because they're, they're disobedient, you know, those who were disobedient during uh, uh, the days of, of Noah. And if you, you flip back to Genesis chapter 6, there's some interesting details that are found in the historical record of Noah. Genesis chapter 6. Why don't you follow there with me? Genesis chapter 6. Just before the historical record of the flood, in Genesis chapter 6, I'll start at verse 1 just to, to show what led up to that flood. It says, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Verse 7, the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals, to creeping things, and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But it speaks here specifically about these sons of, of God. Verse 2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. And then later on in verse 4, it speaks about uh, the Nephilim were in the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men. That specific phrase, sons of God, in the Old Testament, it only shows up three other times in the entire Old Testament. Three times. 
Book of Job. Uh, why don't you flip over there with me just to, to show you uh, these, these three times that this uh, shows up. The book of Job. Job chapter 1. Look at verse 6. Job chapter 1 and verse 6. Job 1 verse 6. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. What we're, we're talking about here is an angelic assembly. The sons of God appearing before the Lord and Satan as another spirit comes and appears with them. Chapter 2, look at verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. Then you also find it over in uh, Job 38 in verse 7, where it speaks about the angel's observation of the miracle of creation. And it says, when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And the evidence points to this phrase, son of God, being used for angels. Everywhere else that is used in the Bible, it's a reference to angels. And it's the same reference in Genesis chapter 6 as well. But what were these fallen angels? What was going on with these fallen angels? What happened is these fallen angels, what they, they did in their alliance with men was so sinister, so wicked, so diabolical that God essentially hits the reset button on planet Earth and reboots the entire globe. It's like a, like a new Genesis that occurs after the flood. In Genesis uh, chapter 9 and verse 1, it says, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Basically, the, a repetition of what God told Adam and Eve back in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28. Whatever's going on in Genesis chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 6 is so outrageous that it required the Lord to wash the complete earth clean. The entire population wiped out except eight souls. That's what happened to men. But what about these sons of God? What about these, these fallen angels who participated in this corruption? Over in First uh, Peter chapter 3 and verse 19, it says that these spirits were sent to prison. Entire earth was wiped out and the, the, the spirits were sent to prison. And that word for prison is just a, a, a general word for prison. Now, it speaks about a location, not a condition. And it appears to be the same place that Peter is referring to over in 2 Peter chapter 2. I know I'm flipping you around a lot, but how else are you going to do this, right? 2 Peter chapter 2. And we'll, we'll bring it together in a little bit, don't worry. 2 Peter chapter 2. Over in 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter's referring to the days of Noah again. But just before he mentions the days of Noah, he refers to certain angels who have already received their judgment. There are certain angels out of all the angels who've already received judgment. Look at chapter 2 and verse 4. It says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And then in verse 6, he goes on to say, And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. What's going on here? Peter, again, he's, he's speaking about the same general time. 
There's this time of Noah when the, 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 the world received the flood, but the angels were committed to pits of darkness and reserved for judgment. There was a certain group of angels that are already committed to judgment. They're already locked down, already reserved in darkness, committed to hell, cast into hell already. Already. Peter again refers to this place of judgment for angels and he connects them with the, the flood and even here with, the, uh, with Sodom and Gomorrah. But instead of saying that these spirits are in prison, he says they've been committed to hell, pits of darkness and reserved for judgment. It's interesting that the word that Peter uses there is the word tartaros for hell. It was a, a word that was used in uh, Greek mythology for a place where the worst sinners went. And Peter picks this up and says that this is where the worst spirits went. And they've been confined there by God. And then there's this one more reference I want to turn you to. Flip over to the book of Jude. Don't ask me what chapter. (laughs) Book of Jude. And hopefully this is a passage that will connect the dots for you, okay? In the book of Jude, right after speaking about false teachers... As ungodly and licentious men, Jude moves on to speak about the kind of punishment that they deserve, and he compares them to certain angels. But what angels? What angels is he is he speaking of? Look at look at verse six. It says, "And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds." Again, they're in prison. They're locked down. They're in eternal bonds. There are certain evil spirits who aren't roaming around, who are already locked down. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. We're all talking about the same thing, okay? And again, they're being reserved for the day of judgment. Same as 1 Peter, same as 2 Peter. And look at what he compares their sin with. Verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality... And went after, listen to this, strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal life. The specific sin that these angels were engaged in is so foul, so heinous, that God determined he would make an example out of them. They would be exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Similar to... Sodom and Gomorrah that also served as an example for those who would come in the future. Their punishment came early. But what kind of sin were they engaged in? It says they were engaged in a sin like Sodom and Gomorrah. They indulged in gross immorality. They went after strange flesh. And we know what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. There was rampant homosexuality, homosexual behavior in Sodom. That was the strange flesh. But listen to this. Also, if you remember back to the, to the account in Genesis chapter 19, not only did the, the men of the city go after one another, when the angels from the Lord came into the city, they also wanted the angels. They wanted the angels. Genesis chapter 19, if you want to flip back there, Genesis chapter 19. Look at verse 1, Genesis 19, starting at verse 1. Since now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he arose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. 
And he said, now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet that you may arise early and go on your way. They said, however, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. <laughs> Yet he urged them strongly. <laughs> so they turned aside to him and entered into his house. Please do not spend the night in the square. I know what happens in the square. You don't want to spend the night there. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he prepared a feast for them, baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. What I believe was happening in Genesis chapter 6 is the opposite of what we find in Genesis chapter 19. In Genesis 19, it was the men who were going after the angels. In Genesis chapter 6, I believe it was the angels who were going after the men. And that's not a new view. That's not a new view. Uh, there's actually an ancient Jewish tradition that agrees with this interpretation. One commentator, Thomas Schreiner, uh, summarizes it this way. Listen to this. He says, there's a clear Jewish tradition in which the angelic beings of Genesis 6 whose disobedience caused the flood, were subsequently imprisoned. These beings are identified as spirits and are clearly to be understood as non-human. Their sin was to take for themselves human wives, the offspring of which union was understood to be the source of evil in the world. That is the tradition which underlies the reference to spirits in our verse, and it seems likely to be the case. And I believe that the specific kind of sin that this group of fallen angels engaged in whether it was directly through some kind of uh, sinful cohabitation or some kind of uh, a relationship through demonic possession, was so bad, so outrageous, that God placed them in a holding tank and gave them their judgment early. You're, you're not going to wait for the end of time to be judged. I'm judging you now. Just like Sodom and Gomorrah when the fire fell, you know, you're not going to wait until you just die a natural death. I'm judging you now. I'm bringing the fire now. I'm not going to wait until you get to the fire. I'm bringing the fire to you. And this is what's going on in Genesis chapter 6. And that became such a fearful judgment. When these angels were judged, it became such a fearful judgment that it was the, the line in the sand that they didn't want to cross. It was like the line in the salt, you know, if you want to take Genesis 19. The demons were so fearful of this torment, even up until this day. Flip over to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8 records uh, what interpreters refer to as the long day of Jesus. He's on the other side of the seas, ministering to the crowds, healing the sick, addressing his family, teaching the crowds, explaining his parables, rebuking the Pharisees, challenging half-hearted followers. And then deep into the night, the day ended with Jesus calming the storms. All this happened on the same day. And on the next day, Jesus doesn't get a break. Because right after he docks at the shore, he's greeted by two men who are howling out of the tomb. Demon-possessed men. Look at chapter 8 and verse 28. It says, when he came to the other side into the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. And they cried out saying, what business do we have with each other, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? 
as frightened, as frightening as the, the demon-possessed men might have been, these demon-possessed men were more frightened by Jesus. <laughs> like, are, are you, are you, you, you seem like you're a little bit early. <laughs> are you, are you here to, to bring it now? Like, 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 Lord, we, we, we thought we were doing okay. Also interesting, you got two men together there. They're spending the time together. But they had, uh, they had faced Jesus. A group of demons, these demons and these men. And they're wondering, is, is, it, is it time? Is the time up? Have you come to bring us the torment before the time? They understood that there was a torment that some demons received before the time was up. And that's the group of demons that the Lord preaches to. Back to 1 Peter chapter 3. Who did Christ preach to? He preached to these spirits who were bound in prison. Those who were reserved for judgment. And what did Christ preach? What did Christ preach? Was it a message of hope? Salvation? The answer is absolutely not. Hebrews 2.16, for assuredly he does not give help to angels. The angels don't receive the, the salvation of God. They don't receive grace. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 12 speaks about the holy angels, how they, they, they stoop down and long to look into the salvation that we have because it's not something that belongs to them. So it's, it's not to preach salvation. And actually, uh, the word that's used for Christ preaching to these spirits is not the normal word that we use for preaching the gospel. Uh, the normal word for preaching the gospel is euangelizo. It's, it's a word to, to preach good news, to speak good news. This is a different word. It's a more generic word. It's the word keruso. It means to herald, to proclaim, to announce. And the announcement depends on the context. It could be the announcement of good news, or it could be the announcement of bad news. <laughs> it could be the announcement that salvation is here, or it could be the announcement that judgment is here. all depends on the context. And the news that would have been appropriate in this context is subjection. Isn't that what's communicated about the angels in verse 22? After angels, authorities, powers had been subjected to him. Like I said, don't miss where Peter is going with this. Verse 22, it's all about subjecting to Christ. The proclamation to the spirits in prison is connected with this subjection of the angels. And Peter steps aside for a moment in verses 20 and 21 because mentioning these spirits calls to, to mind the story of the flood. And there's a lesson that's there for us as well. And we'll get into that next week. But even if I lost you in the middle, I should be able to pull you back here because where Peter is going is Christ's victory, Christ victorious. And that's another reason why I'm convinced that the position that I have on this passage is the right one because it answers all the context. It supports the context here. There's more going on in this context than, than Noah preaching salvation in his day or Jesus preaching salvation and liberation in his day. This is about Christ proclaiming victory, subjecting the enemies before he takes his seat at the right hand of the Father. Like I said over in Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. These are the enemies of Christ, and Christ is coming to proclaim triumph over them. In uh, verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 110, it says, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. Any, any authority is going to be shattered. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men 
over a broad country. This is the takeover. And Jesus is vanquishing his enemies. And all of the angelic hosts are going to hear about this one, including the ones who are reserved for judgment. And it's kind of interesting. Some commentators point out that uh, all the holy angels would have been able to see the ministry of Christ and view the ministry of Christ. They knew about what was going on. That the evil spirits who were roaming around the earth, they knew about Jesus Christ. They knew what was going on. Who was left out? These, these angels that were reserved for judgment. They're, they're not viewing the ministry of Christ. So Christ shows up and says, let me tell you who's in charge. Let, let me tell you who's triumphing. Let me tell you who just won the victory. Jesus Christ proclaims his victory to these spirits in the prison. This is the takeover. Colossians 2.15 puts it this way. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them. Public humiliation. Having triumphed over them through him. It's not just enough to defeat. It's not just enough to have them defeated. It's, it's like it's, they're going to be crushed. And they're going to be forced to watch the victory parade. One commentator says this. The, the idea of public triumph alludes to the Roman custom of Awarding a victorious general with the victory parade. Behind the general, as he rode in splendor through the city, would follow in chains prisoners from the successful campaign. You know, basically what would happen when a, a general went out and attacked a, a neighboring country and he won and he was victorious. He'd bring back the, the prisoners of war, you know, in chains, following behind him. As those in a city are, you know, throwing the, the palm branches and flowers and celebrating his victory, and he's got behind him all those who have been vanquished. And basically, that's the idea here with Jesus Christ. He's, he's showing that I, I, I'm, I'm victorious. I've triumphed. And he's making this triumph known to all angels and even men in the future. The enemies of Christ are defeated. And if the enemies of Christ are defeated, who else's enemies are defeated? Ours. <laughs> Our enemies are defeated. You don't have to be ashamed to suffer with Jesus Christ. Don't be ashamed to suffer with Jesus Christ. Why? Because the Bible lets us know that if we endure, we will also reign with him. We will reign with him. The tyranny will come, in, come to an end. The believer is fully victorious. Nothing separates us from Christ. And that's the point. No matter what we face now, it's all going to end well in the end for the believer. And that's one of the comparisons that's being made even with Noah who you know, brings across eight souls safely, right? Eight souls come out safely uh, through the water. Why? Because you know, it's, it's, it's the, the bringing home of, of, of those who are you know, in the ark, in the ark of safety. And the ark that we have of safety is Jesus Christ. And we'll be brought all the way home. And the final question is this. Final question. When did Christ preach? When did Christ preach? Sometime between his death and his ascension. <laughs> That's when it happened. I am sure of that. I am completely sure of that. Short answer is, I do not know. Okay? Look back at verse uh, 18, chapter 3. It says, uh, For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And there's a, a contrast there, and it's, it's a bit different than what you might expect, because what we would expect Peter to say is that Jesus was put to death in the flesh and made alive in the flesh, right? Because he, he rose again, a bodily, physical resurrection, right? But here it says he was put to death in the flesh, 
and made alive in the spirit. What, what's, what's going on there? I mean, we, we speak about his bodily resurrection down in chapter 3 and verse 21. It says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this passage speaks about the resurrection of Christ. But what does it mean here by being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit? Some versions uh, will say that he was made alive by the spirit. But that's actually an interpretation there. There's definitely a parallelism between put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit. And it's best to leave that parallelism there in the text. And I really believe that what Peter is saying is that at the moment Jesus bowed his head in death, his path to exaltation began. The, The moment that he bowed his head in death, the path to exaltation began. Think about the the crucifixion. It was completely characterized and covered by death. Not only was there physical death for Jesus, but he endured the full weight of the wrath of God. There was death in the cup that he drank. And when Jesus cried out in Matthew chapter 26 and 39, where he says, Father, if if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He wasn't talking about physical death. Jesus wasn't afraid to die. And when those those drops of sweat started pouring down his body like like drops of blood, it was the cup of God's wrath that he was contemplating. He wasn't thinking about death. He he, he told his disciples many times that you need to be ready to die. Pick up your cross, deny yourself, follow me. He wasn't afraid of the cross. But what he was contemplating when he sweat like great drops of blood was the wrath of God being poured out over him. Same wrath of God that's spoken of in Revelation 14 and verse 10, where it says he will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And as Jesus hung on the cross, he drank the cup of the wrath of God down to the very last drop. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He tasted eternal death for everyone who would ever believe in him. And the moment he bowed his head, you remember what he said? It's finished. It's finished. It's over with. And he bowed his head and he gave up the spirit. And it was at that moment when Jesus bowed his head in death that his spirit revived. Made alive in the spirit. No longer under the father's wrath. No longer under the condemnation. No longer was the father's face turned away from him. It was at that moment that Jesus began to be exalted. And he was received into paradise. Luke chapter 23, verse 43. Spoke to the thief and he says, Today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus was exalted from the time that he hung his head in death. And at the same time, the fallen angels were also publicly humiliated. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9 lets us know that for a period of time that Jesus was lower than the angels. Lower than the angels. Hebrews 2 verse 9. It says, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And when he was exalted, Scripture lets us know that the rulers and authorities were made a public display. He disarmed them, triumphed over them. And this is where we find that there was also this proclamation. But when exactly did it happen? The scriptures don't tell us. 
Scriptures don't tell us, but somewhere between the death of Christ and the time that he ascended to the right hand of the Father, this public humiliation happened. This, this proclamation to the spirits in prison happened. They were humiliated. And I'll also say another thing. Christ didn't have to go to hell in order to make that happen. He didn't have to go to hell in order to make this public proclamation. Why do I say that? Remember in uh, Luke 16, we mentioned it earlier before, how you have uh, Lazarus and the rich man and they're speaking to one another over the chasm. Did Lazarus ever go onto the other side or the rich man to the other side? The answer is no. But they could hear exactly what was going on, right? Over the chasm. We don't even know if Jesus had to descend into hell in order to make this proclamation. He could have made this proclamation at any time. On his way up to paradise, on his way up to glory. He could have gone there himself. I mean, we don't know when it happened. But what we do know is that it did happen. And the Christ that we read about in 1 Peter chapter 3 is the one who having gone into heaven. He did that after. He ascended into heaven, sat at the right hand of the Father after something else happened. What happened first? Angels, authorities, and powers were subjected to him. He took care of business first before he took his seat. Psalm 110 says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. And aren't we grateful that Christ rules? Amen. Amen. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for uh, this, uh, this window that we get into Christ. To see the one who reigns, to see the one who rules, to see the one who proclaims his victory. And Father, for those of us who belong to Jesus Christ, that victory is our victory. The triumph of Christ is our triumph in Christ. And Father, we should not be ashamed or afraid to suffer persecution for your name. Because those who suffer with you will also reign with you. Now, Father, help us to have an exalted, an exalted view of Jesus Christ. That we would think on him often. And uh, Father, that, uh, uh, that we would rejoice in the one who is soon to return. In Jesus' name, praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events or where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating CDs and all digital files.